0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you, but i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We begin with the 22nd podcast in our series on the second half of American history. In the 21st podcast, I introduced you to six-star general John J. Pershing and why he won the nickname Blackjack. We then looked at the sheer numbers that determined the outcome of the war, unfortunately, numbering as we went over in the tens of millions. We looked at President American President Wilson's role in that, with this idea of open diplomacy versus secret treaties based on this new premise of collective security. But we also then looked at the numbers, which then explained why Wilson, who was accepted like a rock star when he arrived in Europe after the war, but was sent packing back home very quickly when the idea of vengeance and revenge that he didn't share with the European leaders quickly became a problem. From there, we also then looked at the total casualties, again, numbering in the tens of millions and the American cost of the war, in dollars and cents at over $208 billion. Finally, we looked at the peace conferences of 1919 and then more specifically at the Treaty of Versailles, ending when the Germans were forced to sign that treaty on June 28, 1919, on the armistice railcar. Today we're going to conclude this second this first world war. As we look now at America and the reason why the United States wanted nothing to do with the Paris Treaties. However, a quick footnote, because for those that might be following my podcast, both through world history and American history, I wanna tie this in as well In from this point that anti-Semitism skyrocketed in Germany after the war as select German leadership started garnering a following by putting the pressure on the Jews as to being blamed for the reason why Germany lost the First World War. The problem, however, of the Germans to blame the German Jews for the loss of the war would result in a numbers problem. Because at that time, in 1919, there were only about 500,000 German Jews living within the confines of Germany. And where that problem comes in, the logic with the math is that the population in Germany in 1919 was 61 million, meaning that the Jews made up less than 1% of the total population. Back here at home, selling the plan as President Wilson was so determined to do to get America's involvement in the war. However, he hit two brick walls one both in the United States Capitol, one with the House of Representatives, of course, and the other with the United States Senate. In terms of trying to sell the plan, when he realized that Republicans had gained both the leadership or the majority in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, that wasn't to deter Wilson. He thought he could convince, if he he could convince the American people that it was in the United States' best interest to join the Treaty of Versailles, then they could put the pressure on their representatives to go along with the president's plan. And in the end, Wilson was right. A majority of the of Americans at the time did favor the treaty, even with the German aspects of blaming the Germans for the war itself. So for that reason, congressional Republicans initially were open to the American people's will. However, it didn't translate into votes. And as a whole, congressional Republicans were therefore reluctant to approve. And in order to explain why, for reason for the reluctance, all we have to do is just go back a few podcasts, or in other words, look back briefly into the more recent American history up to this point. And the Republicans that refused to sign and endorse the president's involvement with the treaty... They, the Republicans fell into two general camps. One was called the irreconcilables and the other group were called the reservationists. With the irreconcilables, these were, in, these were Republican Congress people who had no interest in signing the war because they wanted to return back to the ideals of the progressive era. They wanted to see those reforms continue. In other words, their minds were more or less back on domestic issues. The war is over, The war to end all wars, the great war is now behind us. Let's bring our soldiers back home and worry about what's going on in our own back and front yards. The second group was the reservationists. These were individuals that were concerned not only with the war guilt clause, but with the immigration laws that went as a result. In terms of the war guilt clause, that's what we're talking about earlier, where where a, a a disproportionate amount of blame And the entire financial responsibility for the war rested on Germany. And some reservationist Republicans were afraid that that was only sowing seeds for another conflict down the road. Needless to say how right they were. Once again, though, President Wilson wasn't going to be deterred by Republicans' lack of involvement. He took his campaign for American involvement, literally to the American people themselves. By ordering a train, which was going to take Wilson through as many of the lower states as possible, within reason, coming back to Washington to tend to business and then out again, before it was too late, President Wilson hoped to appeal directly to the American people. To give you an idea in terms of the physical exertion that the president had to put forth, he made 37 speeches in less than two months. And one might argue, okay, so roughly that's a speech every other day, admittedly. Now add the travel time to that as well, and still running the country as a result. And again, one might say, well, geez, that's really not that many speeches, only 37 in less than two months. Why didn't he continue? Because after the 37th speech, he couldn't. He had future speeches planned in different destination cities. The problem was that the physical toll of his stamina snapped. It finally took hold of him. He was in the rail car heading east towards the Mississippi River Valley. When he got up from his table and started more or less saying things incoherently, he had trouble walking his aides noticed that the left side of his face began to droop until finally he collapsed. President Wilson suffered a stroke. Because of the uncertainty as to what was wrong right then and there, the train was ordered then to go nonstop or as long as possible before refueling directly to Washington, D.C. And it was there that doctors determined that he had indeed suffered in what we would even still today would be a severe stroke paralyzing the left side of his body, strickening him to a wheelchair, making him for the most part, unable to speak. What science and medical science didn't know then that we know today is when a human being suffers a stroke, again, paralyzing generally the left side of the body, the body heals, begins to heal itself practically immediately. However, the body begins to heal from the foot up not from the brain down. This is part of the reason why individuals that suffer a stroke are able to ambulate again, are able to walk, in some cases, weeks or a few months after the stroke, yet still not have any control over the left arm, their speech still incoherent, and in some cases still seeing the droop on the left side of the face. As more time goes on, if the person is able to heal, the healing will continue to work its way up the body. For President Wilson, he never did leave that wheelchair for the remainder of his time in the White House. One might argue, how the heck did he even remain in the White House with suffering a stroke? What was the reaction of the American people? The bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, the American people didn't know. Wilson's second wife, his first wife, Ellen, had died in the White House of all places shortly after his first term began. His second wife, Edith Bowling Galt, she was determined, per his wishes, to keep his stroke from the American people and in front of the Senate, for keep it from the House of Representatives. Even the staff within the White House was not privy to the president's condition. President Wilson essentially was governing the United States of America through his wife. So this idea that in the election of 2016, if Hillary Clinton had won, would be the first time that a woman was truly in the Oval Office running the country, only because of a play on words or a stretch, that wouldn't have been true. Yes, she would have been officially the 45th president of the United States had she won. However, Edith Wilson was running the country through the Oval Office. The senators, representatives Governors still came to the White House for the regular meetings with President Wilson. However, just at the last minute, Edith would walk into the cabinet room, to the diplomatic reception room, or wherever that the president was supposed to meet with with his guests and state that something has come up and the president is unavailable. However, in his name, she will continue the meeting so as not to waste their time. Finally, at one point, New Mexico Senator Albert Fall jumped up from his chair and slammed his hand on the table and said, for all intents and purposes, this country is being run by a woman. Where is the president? It is amazing the way Edith could keep her composure, keeping knowing full well what was wrong with her husband and the uncertainty of his health and be able to look those senators and representatives in the eye and go on with business as though nothing had happened. In modern times, of course, folks, there's no way that something like that was going to happen. But Wilson would remain in the wheelchair, even out of, out the door, despite the fact of having interest in running for a third term. It wasn't going to happen because of the amount of distaste that the American people had for the Democratic Party by the by election day of of november of 1920. that's when of course the republicans brought swept in with more republican victories with ohio's last citizen to become president of the united states warren harding however because wilson was uh, unable to travel to any of the further states and give give the speeches to try to convince the american people on march 20th 1920 the united states senate killed the treaty by voting America's involvement down. Wilson was beside himself with what he perceived to be as a great loss, as America would no longer have the ability to have a say in European politics going forward. That said, we then look at the United States in the post-war world. Unlike the way when World War One started, we saw the way that the president was able to recruit leadership to try to convert civilian industry for war production. The problem was, is that there was no plan to convert the war footing back to civilian production. Companies more or less were let loose now to stop the war production, producing war materials, to going back to producing civilian goods. But they also continued to produce at a pace that America had never been able to witness prior to our involvement in the First World War. And we that would come back to haunt us big time in the foreseeable short foreseeable future. War veterans were thrust back into civilian life with no attempt at understanding of the horrors that they witnessed and in some cases took part in. We know today that clearly they suffered from what we would call today post-traumatic stress syndrome. But there was none of that understanding back then any more than there was after the American Civil War. I have a great uncle on my mother's side who came back from the First World War and from what the family described as a broken man. I have his helmet with all my war artifacts. If only that helmet could speak. And how ironic that he returned back to civilian life. But just as the Second World War broke out, my great uncle John committed suicide. One can only wonder if him looking at the newspapers of the war as second world war as it began to develop and rage did that ultimately put him back into a world that he thought he left behind and did not have the strength to witness going forward no one of course will ever know women and minorities were forced back into their old roles not only were they suddenly now not fit to do a man's job or a black man to do a white man's job but the racism that entrenched America in the years before our involvement in the war came racing back. How sad that a black American soldier from the New Orleans area who was treated for three different wounds in a French hospital and the French who took care of the black soldiers just as well as they did any other allied soldier. As he comes back and gets off the train in his hometown in Louisiana, and is embraced by his two brothers who walk him down the street, a war hero, a group of white men, didn't like the attention that was being paid to a black man, and killed him on the spot. How sad that a man, an American, is is hit three times by the German enemy, brought back to health by the French, and then comes back to be killed in front of his own family by his own people. How sad again is that? With that Warren Harding, as we talked about earlier, won the pre-1920 presidential election in a landslide. And now we began to turn our efforts, resuming those arguments about the problems with progressivism in America and big corporate America, as we now look at going forward of what the 1920s are going to be like. Off the cuff, for especially my American listeners or international listeners well-versed in American history, you know what the 1920s is going to be like. Because when I say the 1920s and I ask you to give me a nickname, most of my listeners would probably say, oh yeah, I got you there, Chris. It's the roaring 20s. And you'd be right. However, There's so many reasons the 1920s roared. In fact, there is no 10 year period in all of American history that has more nicknames for it than the 1920s. What about that is what we're going to take a look at in the next podcast. However, I ask you to pause just a moment before you think we're at the end of this podcast because. With America's involvement in the First World War we suddenly found ourselves in a real quandary with our veterans coming back from overseas as we talked about before 116,000 soldiers 516,516 would come back unfortunately in body bags but the other hundreds of thousands would return and they would be honored accordingly as they should have been, but again, there was a problem with the veterans coming back that we didn't have before at the volume we do now in any prior conflict in American history. One can say, and rightly so, that the most noble, the most honorable thing, courageous thing one can do is to give up their life for their country. And I'm not about to argue in any way, shape or form against that. Absolutely, wholeheartedly support that. But World War One taught us that, yes, that's still unbelievably important. So when a soldier comes back and physically looks good, but mentally we know something's wrong, we honor them. Even if mentally they're fine, they fought for American democracy they fought to keep our homeland safe and should again be honored accordingly. And the soldiers that come back with limbs missing, with part of their bodies deformed because of the poison gas. Again, we also acknowledge them with various honors. The dead, as they return with their dog tags, identifying them so we can notify the family. All of this we've done before, In every conflict that america has been involved with until now because soldiers were coming back in body bags so grossly deformed due to biological and chemical weapons overseas that they were not recognizable their dog tags were torn off of their necks and in some cases soldier uh, soldiers with no necks or heads anyhow. How do we thank a soldier we can't identify? Any soldier who fights in America's war has every right to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery or any other national cemetery for war veterans. And again, as they should be, and it should not be allowed for individuals like myself who never picked up a weapon to defend this country. But, Do we just simply bury the unrecognizable and unidentifiable dead in just some small plot or corner of a cemetery? That That just doesn't go. There's something wrong with that. The families around America who will never know what happened to their loved ones, their father, their son, their brother, their husband, where are they? There's no reports that they were taken prisoner of war. They certainly didn't come back alive. There's no dead that have been identified. Where are they? And countless families will never know. And through to 2022, 103 years later, those families and extended families still don't know. What can we do? How can we honor the brave? that fought so hard and got into such dangerous situations that when they were killed, their identities were forever erased. That is why we created the United States Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. No surprise that it was established in 1921. In 1921, soldiers began Once the tomb was complete, soldiers began a watch or to be vigilant during the working hours when Arlington National Cemetery was open. Then, starting in 1937, soldiers began to guard the tomb 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Come rain or shine, an American soldier is physically guarding the tomb of the unknowns. Listeners, I may have said this before, and if I repeat it, I'm not apologizing because if I had my way, I'd make this part of every podcast going forward. But if you ever have the opportunity to get to Washington, D.C., to visit our nation's capital, My international listeners would more than welcome and hope you could see the nation's capital that I am so proud of, as I've been there many times. However, there's so much to see in Washington, D.C. Admittedly, people want to get in and they want to see the presidential memorials. They want to see the various war memorials, et cetera. And all of that is rightly so, and, and, and you should see it if you have the time. The whole idea about the Smithsonian Institution, by all means, but don't think that you're going to see every exhibit because it would take you decades to do so if you really tried. So, no, the place is a lot bigger than any of us are ever going to see. So, therefore, rather than race to FDR Memorial or to Jefferson's or Lincoln, I ask you to make your first stop Arlington National Cemetery. Lee's old estate that was confiscated when he gave up his commission to fight for the Confederacy. Visit Arlington National Cemetery and go to the Tomb of the Unknown. And admittedly, one's very busy when they travel, but stay a minimum of 30 minutes. In fact, you wouldn't even need to stay more than 35 minutes for the Tomb of the Unknown and watch the changing of the guard. I challenge any listener to watch the changing of the guard and tell me if you can't keep a straight face. Tell me that your eyes didn't water or you, the hair on your neck didn't tingle, as is d- happening to me right now, and I haven't been there in many years, but I am determined, as my wife and I discussed, that we will be taking my three, our three kids because they are now old enough to show the respect that would be more than deserved at Arlington. Watch the changing of the guard. Look at the discipline of those soldiers as they guard that tomb, as they take 21 steps in each direction turn wait 21 seconds take 21 steps 21 21 21 that is our 1776 so ingrained into the american and military psyche that when you add 1776 together that number is 21. look at the how studious those soldiers are as they guard that tomb And after the ceremony of the changing of the guard, which again occurs every half hour for those soldiers to go in, and one might ask, a half hour? My gosh, if they're already out there, shouldn't they be out there for several hours? Think about how much time those soldiers prepared just for that half hour tour. It takes soldiers that guard the Tomb of the Unknown no less than eight hours, to prepare for their time. They take two hours alone, just on their shoes. They stand tall in front of their counterparts, once dressed, to make sure that there is nothing amiss before they go in front of the commander, who will look them over from head truly to toe to make sure that not a thread is out of place anywhere on their uniform. That that hat, excuse me, that their cap is perfectly seated correctly on their head. That their footwear doesn't have the remotest scuff mark or particle of dust on it. When those soldiers are not actually guarding or preparing for their time, they take time to study the men and women that are buried there at Arlington, where they are interred, how they died, what their history is. That's what they do for their 24 month tour that cannot be renewed. They are on guard, they are there for 24 months and during that 24 months, they do not watch television, they do not consume alcohol. They get ready to go out regardless of the weather. To give you an idea how extreme they hold that, how endearing that is to them and important, in 2005, Hurricane Isabel was aiming towards Washington, D.C. as a Category 4 hurricane. George W. Bush got the heck out of Dodge as that hurricane started getting closer. He wasn't alone. So did all of Congress and all nine Supreme Court justices. At one point, the sideways winds were so unbelievably forceful that the commander told that for, until further notice, the soldiers can stand down from their tour. Without thinking, without blinking, the soldiers continuing to work and do what they were doing, in their own words, essentially said, no, sir, no way, sir. And they continued to go out in Category 3 hurricane force winds, and do their, what they consider to be their honor, not duty, honor. Because it is televised, or uh, not televised, excuse me, but videotaped or video recorded, it was also seen that on 9-11, when the Pentagon was hit by that plane, the soldiers guarding the tomb never missed a beat. They didn't move their heads. They didn't stop their footing. They didn't stop their counting, they continued to pace back and forth, guarding the remains of a former American soldier that they will never be able to thank. Please know in modern times, despite the fact we had remains for the Tomb of the Unknown that would represent all the unknowns of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, those are now all identifiable due, to, of course, to DNA and different uh, dental records. But there are still remains in the tomb, or represented by the Tomb of the Unknown from the First World War. And as a result, we continue to guard the Tomb of the Unknown 24-7-365. That concludes, again, our discussion on World War One. When we come back, America is going to roar. And we're going to find out why America roared and roared huge. The whole world heard us as we continued to roar in all of this unprecedented wealth until that decade roared to a close with the onset of the Great Depression. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com and email me with any questions you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.